On the morning of February 28, 1993, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, otherwise known as the ATF, launched what was named at the time Operation Trojan Horse. The objective seemed simple enough. The ATF, having been tipped off by the McLennan County Sheriff's Office about inert grenade casings being sent through the mail, were there to also look for illegally modified weapons. With nearly 100 agents at their disposal, many of them armed and in full tactical gear, they were at Mount Carmel, the home of the religious group of the Branch Davidians, to serve warrants regarding the illegal firearms and to arrest Branch Davidian leader David Koresh. According to accounts, the ATF knew that David Koresh and the Branch Davidians had been tipped off before the raid, but decided to move forward with the operation regardless. The ATF agents, many riding in the back of horse carriers, arrived at the Mount Carmel site in a tremendous show of paramilitary-style force, expecting the Branch Davidians to quickly comply with the terms of the search warrant for fear of being arrested. Instead, the simple operation of serving the warrants would turn out to be one of the worst firefights ever seen by a law enforcement agency. It is still debated who fired the first rounds, although official accounts accuse the Branch Davidians, under orders of David Koresh, as the ones who opened fire first, thereby ambushing the agents with a tremendous show of firepower. This included multiple fully automatic machine guns and one 50 caliber rifle that used ammunition that tore through an engine block before hitting an ATF agent in the leg. Helicopters being flown by the Texas National Guard, brought in as an aerial distraction for the raid, also reported being fired upon by the Davidians before being forced to land. After the first 45 minutes, the gunfire began to wane as the ATF agents began running low on ammunition. The firefight, however, continued for two intense hours, with Davidians shooting at ATF agents from fortified positions above and around the Mount Carmel complex. By the time the firefight came to an end, four ATF agents, Steve Willis, Robert Williams, Todd McKeon, and Conway Charles LeBlu had been shot and killed, in addition to Davidians Winston Blake, Peter Ghent, Peter Hipsman, Perry Jones, and J. Dean Wendell, two of whom were shot by other Davidians in so-called mercy killings after being wounded by the ATF. Knowing they were outgunned, the ATF desperately sought a way to broker a ceasefire so they could retreat, collect their downed agents, and regroup. They turned to a lieutenant with the McLennan County Sheriff's Department, who was trusted by the Branch Davidians and was able to broker a cessation of the gunfire on both sides. Roughly six hours after the ceasefire, however, another Davidian was killed as he tried to enter the Mount Carmel Center by bypassing the federal agents who had surrounded it. Michael Schroeder was also killed when it was reported that he fired a handgun at agents. As a result of the deaths of the ATF agents, the FBI quickly assumed command of the situation, which had now become a siege of the Branch Davidian compound. The full force of the FBI included two tactical hostage rescue teams and other militarized implements that some say helped push the situation in a much more confrontational direction. Also included were numerous hostage negotiators who were able to establish a line of communication with Koresh and some of his trusted followers inside the compound. Although a tremendous show of governmental law enforcement capability, the negotiation side seemed to have problems communicating with the HRT tactical side of the operation right from the beginning, with the negotiators attempting to de-escalate the situation through talking while the HRT seemed to push for a tactical response in order to force the Branch Davidians out. As the negotiators continued to talk with David Koresh about a peaceful surrender, the FBI HRT team also cut water and power to the compound, engaged in psychological operations against the Davidians including blaring music to prohibit them from sleeping, 
engaged in crude gestures and talk toward the Davidians from outside, and even used a tank to destroy a number of the Davidian vehicles parked outside. Throughout this, 31 people, 21 of whom were children, were still able to leave the compound peacefully during the standoff. As the siege wore on, and the Davidians claiming to be receiving conflicting messages from the FBI teams on the outside, a tactical plan was devised and pitched to the new Attorney General Janet Reno, who then took the plan to President Bill Clinton. It was reported that President Clinton first opted to wait out the Branch Davidians, basing his idea on prior experience with a group by the name of the Covenant, the Sword, and the Arm of the Lord, or CSAL, in 1985. According to reports, Attorney General Janet Reno countered that the HRT teams were growing tired and cited the reported cost of the siege had already been steady at roughly $1 million per week. She also argued that the Davidians could hold out longer than CSAL if they needed to. President Clinton then approved the tactical operation against the Branch Davidians. On the morning of April 19, 1993, the FBI used armored vehicles to punch holes in the walls of the Branch Davidian compound in order to inject tear gas into it in hopes that this would force the remaining Davidians out peacefully. According to records, the plan was to continue to inject gas over the next two days in increasing amounts to gradually turn up pressure on those inside. Around noon that day, after the HRT team had injected CS gas into multiple sites of the building, the agents noticed that fires had broken out in a number of the areas inside the compound. The fire spread quickly, eventually consuming the entire structure. The FBI anxiously waited outside for the Branch Davidians to exit the building. In total, only nine Branch Davidians escaped the blaze that afternoon. A total of 76 people died in the blaze from a multitude of causes including smoke inhalation, cyanide poisoning, gunshot wounds, and blunt force trauma from falling debris as the walls around them collapsed. In the aftermath, several governmental agencies have tried to reconstruct the chain of events that led to the deaths of so many people. Numerous conspiracy theories have been floated regarding the overreach of the federal government at a time when mistrust of law enforcement was mounting. The siege at Waco would be cited as one of the reasons for the bombing of the Alfred P. Murrah Building in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma in 1995, which killed a total of 168 people and injured at least 680 more. This episode is about the Siege at Waco, Part 2. And welcome to Psychology After Dark, the podcast where we explore the dark side of the human condition. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica McCono and Dr. David Morelos. So, David, we're back with part two of Waco, and this episode we've entitled the "quote unquote" good guys. Right. And I think you're going to talk a bit about some of the criticisms of the way law enforcement handled the situation, right? Yeah, I wanted to start out, hopefully, by contextualizing what 
police have typically represented. I think that this is apropos for what's going on currently. So for this episode, I wanted to talk about some of the issues surrounding the law enforcement side of this confrontation. The, the quote-unquote good guys. Right. So right from the get, I think we have to address one of the most pressing issues with law enforcement in the United States today, and that's its increasing militarization and how this overt aggression is being received psychologically by the general populace. And I, yeah, I think that's a very relevant topic right now. Sure. It seems that in the 90s especially, that law enforcement, with the FBI being probably the most well-known face of this, was becoming more and more militarized in their tactics and presentation, with these often over-the-top and grandiose presentations of power against citizens. Obviously, this is an apropos subject in light of recent events, but I'll let the listeners put those pieces together for themselves. In terms of the Waco siege, it helps to understand that at the time there were a very few significant events that launched the FBI and other more local law enforcement agencies on the path of increasing militarization. For whatever reason, and this is probably more of an issue of age than anything else, I remember this being a striking issue in the 1990s. Yeah, I do too. Yeah, I I really can't say why that is, or even if that's completely true. Um, My guess is that police departments using military equipment and tactics probably started way before this. But almost overnight, it seemed that law enforcement agencies like the FBI and even more local agencies like the L.A. Police Department were becoming increasingly militaristic in their approach to dealing with the public. That is when dealing with fellow citizens, not enemy combatants, mind you. So according to historians, militarization of the police can be traced back to the past the Civil War. I won't put our listeners through a history lesson on this as I'm not a historian, nor do I claim to be. But much more recently, going back to President Reagan and the war on drugs. This seemed to progress very rapidly in the 1990s due to all manner of events that police and other law enforcement agencies encountered. Interestingly, going all the way back to ancient Rome. So I said I wasn't going to give you a history lesson, but I'm going to give you a history lesson. But you know what, David? That's what I love about what you bring to this podcast is that you always contextualize things. So I want to hear this. So I want to hear the history. Okay, sure. (laughs) So, going all the way back to ancient Rome, war hero commanders were never allowed to enter the city with their armies. So, this was a rule because a general who often commanded the loyalty of his troops, and who could be propped up by a recent military victory of some sort or another, could then march into the city and easily take it over by force. If I remember my Western civilization class from college correctly, and it's been a while, so bear with me, Julius Caesar disregarded this law and was able to march into the city with his troops and assume power. That is really when Rome the Republic died and Rome the Empire was born. So today, again, this is why for the most part, the U.S. military is not allowed to operate within the confines of the United States. In other words, the military cannot be used against its own citizens, in theory anyway. This topic was explored in the 1998 movie The Siege with Denzel Washington, where one of the boroughs of New York is placed under martial law, allowing the military to take control of the area to seek out would-be terrorists. This was also part of the plot in the more recent movie Sicario with Josh Brolin, where a CIA agent and some Delta Force soldiers are able to hunt down cartel members around the U.S.-Mexico border only because they exploit a loophole that allows them to operate domestically by being attached to law enforcement. In this case, it was Emily Blunt's character who was the unwitting FBI agent. Nowadays, it seems that 
since the military cannot operate domestically, again, in theory at least, the idea is to arm the police forces in such a way as to be the next best thing to having the military police the citizens. Now, law enforcement can do it with much the same equipment and tactics, only under the legal guise of, quote, law enforcement. And this idea has been exploited historically for a long time. Philosophically and historically, police represent the, quote, status quo. That is, they are paid to keep everything just as it is right now. They have been instrumental in the workings of consumer capitalism, which depends on three very distinct classes. To give you some idea of what I mean by this, we could look at the labor movement in the early part of the century and their attempts to unionize in order to demand things like safer working conditions, higher pay, shorter work weeks, child labor laws, etc. Police were often used to help break striking groups of laborers. By doing this, the police would be preservers, again, of the status quo, often ensuring that no real changes were made to labor arrangements. Uh, Jessica, you ever heard of the Pinkertons? You know, I think I remember something about that. Okay. So the Pinkertons was a detective agency, and this was a famous group of union busters and strike breakers going all the way back to the early 1900s. Right. Okay. Yeah. So police, both public and private, were used to ensure that wealth often remained in the hands of a few, and that people like uppity workers of the time knew their place in the wealth-slash-class system of the Industrial Revolution. And that's not even to get into examples such as how police were used to enforce things like Jim Crow laws in the South and so forth. Right. So one interesting way that Irish immigrants, who we all know were treated horribly in the early 1900s, one of the ways they were able to integrate and ingratiate themselves into American society was to become police officers. This is why there has always been a very strong Irish heritage in law enforcement, especially on the East Coast. Another interesting example of how police were becoming more militarized historically might also be how the police in Los Angeles were known to deal with suspected mobsters. So instead of the good old-fashioned police work that eventually took out gangsters like Al Capone, LA cops were known to do things like kidnap mobsters, extort them, and even murdered them by throwing them off of cliffs as a way to cement the squeaky clean image of L.A. in the 1940s and 50s. This idea was dramatized in the movies Mulholland Falls, which came out in 1996, and L.A. Confidential, which came out in 1997. These cops adopted a much more covert and aggressive style to fight fire with fire, so to speak. At any rate, again, police have historically been used to maintain a status quo. Now, this can be good or bad, depending on your perspective. I once got into a debate with a Denver cop friend of mine who exclaimed, I am the status quo. Again, this is good if we are talking about keeping our suburban neighborhood quiet and peaceful, right? But it's decidedly bad when police become the instruments of a status quo that breeds things like racism, classism, or the steady degradation of human and civil rights. Again, I won't draw too many comparisons to current events, but I'll let our listeners make their own connections. Sure. But my point is this. All throughout the 90s, there was a push to give more and more police equipment and training that made them more and more like an occupying military force rather than local constables. We have Ruby Ridge, Waco, the 1992 LA riots. We have the 1997 North Hollywood shootout, if you remember that, Jessica. Yes, I sure do. Yeah, where two bank robbers fired a total of about 1,100 rounds of ammunition at police officers. Many rounds that were capable of piercing body armor. 
Um, we had the summer of violence in 1993 when gang violence exploded. The bombing of the Alfred P. Murrah building in Oklahoma City in 1995. We had the World Trade Center bombing in 1993. And let's definitely not forget to mention finishing off the decade with the Columbine shooting here in Colorado, which was something that was completely unprecedented at that time. And I think that brings up a good point. I think that people who are kind of proponents of the militarization of law enforcement they cite the 90s as kind of the the reason for that because crime violent crime in this country was at its peak during that decade and it was kind of this idea that the more violence there is the more that we need to be able to control and respond to that now again you know you've talked you've talked about and you're going to talk more about the the dark side of all of that and you know and it hasn't really necessarily panned out um, the way that they envisioned, although we do know that our violent crime rates are down compared to the 1990s, I think that there are a lot of other explanations for that other than the militarization of police. Yeah, sure. You know, I had a friend who worked for the Westminster Police Department, and I remember talking with him about the North Hollywood shootout uh, with the two bank robbers, and he said that that was probably one of the scariest things he had ever seen as a police officer. Sure, I can imagine. Yeah, they had absolutely... The police had absolutely no idea what they were walking into when they went to respond to a bank robbery. They These two guys came out with full body armor. They came out with fully automatic weapons, armor-piercing rounds, and it was a, an insane firefight. And so you had events like this in the 1990s, and people started to get really scared, including law enforcement. So that's when you started to see a real buildup of this sort of military type training and an emphasis on these types of tactics as well. Getting back to the Waco siege, according to the new docuseries, or I guess we could call it a docudrama because there were some liberties taken from what I understand. The FBI and the ATF had received some bad press regarding the handling of the Ruby Ridge standoff in 1992 in which a man named Randy Weaver resisted U.S. Marshals trying to arrest him on illegal weapons charges at his home in Idaho. I won't go too much into this case, but to suffice to say, what happened at Ruby Ridge was very controversial and would become a rallying cry for many right-leaning anti-government groups who believed that law enforcement was becoming overly militarized and hyper-focused on the eradication of individual rights, many of which were supposedly guaranteed to us by the U.S. Constitution. It really was no coincidence that much of this focused on newly elected and liberal Democrat Bill Clinton, whom these types really hated with a passion. But politics, I mean, what are you going to do, right? Right. So it was during Clinton's presidency that I, me, you know, I really saw for the first time many of these angry right wing groups come onto the scene. That's not to say that they didn't exist before that. It's just that that was when I was sort of becoming really conscious of it. And I think that Bill Clinton, being the Democrat that he was, sort of brought that out. And so these these groups started becoming much more visible. At any rate, beginning with the so-called war on drugs and Ronald Reagan's presidency, police really started to amp up their approach to dealing with crime. Ruby Ridge was one such event that seemed to solidify even more the idea that police were again being used as instruments of power rather than justice. So right from the beginning, we seem to have a healthy mistrust of the federal government. Add this into the location, that being Waco, Texas, which I'm pretty sure was not Clinton country in the 1992 election. I would guess not. No. Clinton actually beat Texan George Herbert Walker Bush right before the Waco siege. 
1993, so there's that. At that time, there was way more trust in local law enforcement, like the sheriff of McLennan County and the Texas Rangers, both of who were, as far as I can tell, conspicuously left out of the initial ATF raid on the Branch Davidian compound. As a matter of fact, it was reported that Sheriff Harwell didn't even know about the raid until he was called in to help broker a ceasefire between the ATF and the Branch Davidians. Wow. So to me, this was the first mistake, namely the overwhelming show of force that the ATF arrived with. In an article by Ryan Welch and Jack Meewerder, Does the Military Equipment Lead Police Officers to Be More Violent? We Did the Research is the name of it, which was published in the Washington Post in 2017. They concluded that militarized police generally increase the chances of violent conflict with the public, not decrease them. So the idea that this kind of show of force would somehow convince the Branch Davidians to surrender immediately and peacefully is, not to put too fine a point on it, a farce. In fact, this kind of intimidation did the opposite. It made the Branch Davidians feel as if they were under attack, as was foretold by their prophet and leader, David Koresh. After the firefight that ensued, it took someone with whom the Branch Davidians had a relationship, namely the local sheriff's department, to broker a ceasefire. So this to me is an interesting point and something that we use a great deal in corrections. At no time are corrections officers under the illusion that we have power in our numbers. As a matter of fact, it's quite the opposite. We know we're outnumbered. And usually outnumbered by a lot. A lot, yes. Because of this, we also know that we have to form working relationships with the prisoners. Now, when I say that, I mean the kind of relationship we call, quote, walking the line. They're not our friends, but they're not our enemies either kind of relationship. A relationship where we know just enough about them and they us so as to see each other respectfully as humans. This is how the most effective officers generally work a housing unit. We develop relationships specific to our vocation. It seems like the ATF came in a bit haughty in this regard, guns blazing with a show of force that they did. According to the docuseries, this was engineered deliberately to help salvage some of their image which had been tarnished at Ruby Ridge. Now, I don't know for sure if that's the case, but there you go. And they seem to pay the price for this. Yeah, I mean, it terribly backfired if that was the reason right. what they were trying to do. When there is a show of force like this, violence becomes almost inevitable. To this day, it is highly debated who shot first. According to the docudrama on Netflix, the shooting started when some ATF agents attempted to shoot dogs of the Branch Davidians, leading them to believe that they were being fired upon, and hence returning fire from fully automatic weapons and fortified positions around the compound. You know, I wonder how this may have gone if the ATF enlisted the help of the local sheriff when serving the warrant. Understanding the culture of the Branch Davidians and having a working relationship with them as citizens of McLennan County, much like I would argue we do with the prisoners we work with every day in corrections. Could this raid have gone a completely different way? I think it probably could have. I think absolutely. I mean, I think that that there are definitely things that they could have done differently that could have changed the course of events. Yeah, the, to me, the point of no return here came during the firefight when four ATF agents were killed. Once this happened, I believe, the feds fell into a kind of warlike mentality where the fight then becomes about the man standing next to you rather than whatever the target objective is or was. 
after the ATF agents were killed, it was then very predictable for the ATF and then the FBI to feel as if they were the ones under attack. I won't spend too much time drawing a parallel with the events of today, but I understand this kind of mentality. I think it can be very easy to minimize your sense of perspective when you feel like you're under attack. So it's like the Branch Davidians kind of turned the table on the ATF when they responded with an even bigger show of force to the raid. Now, quite suddenly, we have an entire army of federal agents led by the FBI come in under the pretense that they were now dealing with cop killers. The culture of police and law enforcement in general is that they are always in a one-down sort of quasi-state of war with criminals. This kind of pressure bands them together so that they can provide a unified front when being attacked by criminals or whoever. Now, there are good things and bad things about this culture, which we have to acknowledge. Some of the good about this kind of thinking keeps the police force working together as a cohesive team, which is especially important in emergency situations. If I'm in a life or death situation, I certainly want someone whom I know and I trust by my side, rather than someone who doesn't know me or my work or anything about the potential situation at hand. We in law enforcement have to rely on each other a great deal, in part because we are so outnumbered, and it bonds people very quickly. Again, a parallel to this might be soldiers in war. Being put into situations like this really bonds people together. There's a line in the 2001 movie Black Hawk Down where the character says, it's about the man standing next to you. For better or for worse, we're in this together and we need to know we have each other's backs in the process. This kind of thinking, I would argue, is typical for most law enforcement. So here we have a recipe for disaster. The ATF validated the Branch Davidians' belief system when they raided them the way they did and created a cohesive set of true believers by doing so. When the Branch Davidians retaliated by killing ATF agents, the same thing happened. What was originally supposed to be the serving of a warrant in order to look for illegal weapons now became a kind of us-versus-them all-out war, with two heavily armed sides now believing that the other was the enemy. The feds were united due to their work in law enforcement, and the Davidians were united due to their belief in David Koresh. The Branch Davidians were not typical criminal types in any sense. No, because they really believed that they were doing God's work, right? That they were absolutely justified in everything that they were doing. Right. So if we were to take it back to a previous episode where I talk probably a couple previous episodes where I talk about the developmental model of consciousness of uh, spiral dynamics. Mm -hmm. This type of consciousness that the Branch Davidians were coming from is not criminal in nature. So it's much more directed towards a cause rather than just power. Right. Which is what most criminals are mostly directed by. So a whole different type of people that they're dealing with here. Yeah. Whereas they're used to dealing with criminals, right? Yeah, absolutely. They weren't used to um, dealing with a group that they believed that they were so justified um, and that there was actually a divine calling for what they were doing, right? right? Right. So enter the FBI. What many people may not know is that the FBI is considered the gold standard within federal law enforcement. All other law enforcement agencies within the Department of Justice look up to the FBI. They have the most political clout and credibility when it comes to federal law enforcement. Humorously, we in the Bureau of Prisons, who are also under the umbrella of the Department of Justice, are probably at the bottom of this hierarchy, would you say? <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe. Maybe yeah, so. Probably. In between us and the FBI way at the top, you have agencies like the ATF, the DEA, the U.S. Marshals, etc. 
But unlike the U.S. Marshals, I'm pretty sure Tommy Lee Jones isn't going to make a movie about corrections officers. Just saying. Too bad. It would probably be very interesting. Could be. So, at any rate, when something big like this goes down that involves any agency under the purview of the Department of Justice, it will usually, in some way, shape, or form, fall under the control of the FBI. The same is true for us in the Bureau of Prisons. I think that by the time the FBI was placed in charge of the situation, the context had been set. The Branch Davidians were cop killers, and that's that. So right from the beginning, you have an almost impossible situation where a sizable amount of tactical agents were probably ready to tear the place up in retribution for their own fallen agents. Now that's on a personal level. That's sort of the psychology of law enforcement and how they approach situations. Now Mm -hmm. on a professional level, I thought the docudrama did a good job of examining the tension between what would become two very different approaches to the standoff. One represented by the tactical side of the operation the other by the hostage negotiators. The main character in the docudrama was played by Michael Shannon, who was playing the role of FBI negotiator Gary Nosner. He's a great actor, isn't he? Oh, yeah, he did such a great job in that role. Yeah, I agree. Um, A number of articles that I've read about the siege make more references, however, to an FBI negotiator named Byron Sage, who was actually the team lead during the Waco siege. And his own reflections on how, right from the beginning, there were significant communication problems between these two different sides of the operation. Yeah, and you know, it was kind of, it was a little bit confusing because Gary Nosner was, from everything that I could find, was the lead negotiator initially. Right. And what was kind of interesting about this case is that he was taken off of it after about a month. I think it was like 25 days. And then he was pulled off of Waco. And then I believe that this other negotiator, Byron Sage, kind of took over. He had been there all along, but I think he kind of took over at that point. Uh, Yeah, I know you're going to talk more about this, but what most people don't know is that there's an entire team of negotiators. Right, yeah. Yeah, and they all have different roles to play. Right. So, and I'm sure most people are probably aware, this is a significant problem with government agencies. That is the communication issues. We have communication issues, and that's just in our agency, not to mention when we try to coordinate with other agencies like the U.S. Marshals or even the FBI. It can be a nightmare, and I know this from experience, getting everyone on the same page. This issue was put on full display in the events following the 9-11 terrorist attacks. The inability for many responding agencies to coordinate with each other led to a whole host of operational changes as they pertain to managing large-scale events like these. Anyway, Byron Sage and presumably many of the other negotiators present at Waco, including Gary Neusner, had a number of concerns about the tactical show of force that had already taken place at Waco. Not to mention their own HRT team, which was growing impatient by the failed attempts to lure the Davidians out of the compound. According to the docuseries and a number of articles that I read, the HRT engaged in a number of tactics against the Davidians to make them psychologically stressed, such as they cut their water and power, they played blaring music at the compound at night so they couldn't sleep, including the sound of rabbits being slaughtered. Oh, how awful. Yeah, horrible. Crushing vehicles and running over their grave sites with tanks, and even shouting obscenities and making crude gestures at the Davidians. The docudrama depicted um, one HRT member mooning the Davidians from atop an armored personnel carrier. I'm not sure how much of this is actually true and how much was done for dramatic purposes, but there you go. 
Again, to the FBI, these people were cop killers, or to put it another way, enemy combatants, not citizens. To them, the Davidians gave up their rights as citizens when they killed federal agents. One of the other issues that came up in the series was how, when the issue suddenly turned political, the government, including the FBI, sought to paint the Davidians as a dangerous cult, when in fact, this had little to do with the initial ATF raid. While we now know that children were being abused at the compound, this was not made a focus until the government needed to justify such a strong militaristic intervention there. And there was the other added aspect where they, you know, the authorities were told that the Branch Davidians intended on committing mass suicide right, because which is, they were a cult, right? Right, and, which is typical for cults. Right, well, or there had been other cases of that happening, and so they were worried that it was going to be another Jonestown. And so again, them portraying the Branch Davidians as a cult, I think, made it more likely that they were going to, to opt for the tactical response. You probably don't know this off the top of your head, but what year was Heaven's Gate? That was the Hale-Bopp comet, so I'm going to say 1997. 97 or 96, I would say, right? Yeah, I remember seeing it. So yeah, I mean, we had had other... That one, of course, was after Waco. Right. But Jonestown was before, and oh. that was a, a huge loss of, of life. Right, which we've talked about previously. So as we remember, the ATF was looking for guns, not abused children. So the new focus of abused children only really became important after the FBI took over and the politicians at the time needed to justify their continued armed presence there. And again, this did little to make the Davidians want to surrender. These tactics continued to solidify the Davidian group as a whole and to validate their fears about end times. So they dug in, and the FBI HRT team did the same. In between, we had the negotiators facing increasing difficulty bringing both sides to the table to hammer out some kind of peaceful surrender. Again, in the docudrama, the Branch Davidians did seem to come to a surrender agreement through their attorney, but this isn't something that comes out a whole lot in the research about this event. One thing that was interesting to me was that in the agreement, if the Davidians did surrender, all of the evidence would be secured and handled by the Texas Rangers, not the FBI. Again, alluding to the mistrust of the federal government. Obviously, this agreement fell apart as David Koresh played for more time to finish his prophecy and the FBI grew more tired and impatient. It seems that many who work in law enforcement understand the need to develop relationships with those who we police, including building trust with them. They also seem to understand that a strong show of force should be the last resort when attempting to end a situation peacefully. Again, this is something we use a lot in corrections, the significant use of de-escalation techniques for ending potentially violent situations. It's always better for everyone involved if the situation can be handled peacefully. As for how cops tend to react when they see and know of someone they work with being injured or even killed, I can say this from experience. I have a visceral reaction when I see fellow correctional officers being attacked or hurt. Inmates know that the second they submit to us, we have to rapidly de-escalate our response as well. So if an inmate attacks and, let's say, seriously injures one of my coworkers, as long as he lays down with his hands on his head, on the ground, I have to immediately ratchet down my own response because now he's being submissive, right? Right. And that's regardless of my personal feelings about what has just happened. That's very difficult to do if one of your fellow officers is lying there bloodied, having been attacked or something like that. 
yet it is expected of me as a professional. So here we have this sort of conflict between what I'm feeling personally and what my duties are professionally. And I think, you know, that kind of segues in a little bit to what I wanted to discuss as far as kind of the de-escalation and not taking things personally. So, you know, what I wanted to talk about was kind of more about the, the negotiation piece of it. And one of the things that I wanted to discuss is the difference between hostage and crisis situations. So in hostage situations, there is a hostage taker or takers who hold victims against their will in order to obtain some other goal. And they'll often threaten to hurt or kill victims if their demands are not met. In crisis situations, they can also involve holding a person against his or her will, but without the intention to trade the person for some demand. They're in crisis for one reason or another, meaning their coping skills have been overwhelmed. And that's almost like what kind of the sense that I got from you, that there can be situations where our coping skills do get overwhelmed. Yeah, I definitely think so, for sure. Right. And so the idea here is that in crisis situations, the person who has either barricaded themselves or taken a hostage or something like that, they're in that state of mind. Their coping skills have been completely overwhelmed. So all hostage situations are crisis situations, but not the other way around. In the case of Waco, it really doesn't meet this, the definition of a hostage situation. The Branch Davidians did want law enforcement to retreat and to back off, and Koresh wanted his message to get out, but he wasn't threatening to hurt or kill the individuals inside the compound if his demands weren't met. And many of those who were inside were not even being held against their will. They were staying there willingly. So really, this situation met the definition of a crisis situation rather than a hostage situation. And more specifically, it was a barricade situation. Yeah, we learned about barricade situations in corrections because we do see that sometimes. So you alluded earlier to the fact that these negotiators at Waco, they weren't working all on their own. They were actually part of a crisis negotiation team. And there are several well-known crisis negotiation teams in the United States. The New York Police Department developed the first ever specialized team for dealing with crisis negotiation. And of course, there's the FBI's crisis negotiation unit. This unit is part of the Critical Incident Response Group, and it was actually developed in 1994 in response to the things that went wrong during the Waco siege. So Gary Nosner, who, as we talked about, was the lead negotiator for the first 25 days of the standoff, went on to become the first ever chief of the crisis negotiation unit. So one thing I wanted to point out is that these are teams, like you said. While the negotiator tends to be the one in the spotlight, there are several other positions that are equally important. Uh, the first is the team leader, and although that sounds very impressive, generally their job is just to choose people to be on the team and do the training. The on-scene commander, however, is the person responsible for running the scene at the actual crisis or hostage situation. This person directs pretty much everything that happens. The negotiator, as we all know, is the person responsible for actually communicating with the hostage taker or person in crisis. So that was Gary Nosner and then later on Byron Sage. Generally, there is a lead negotiator as well as one or two backup negotiators 
who can step in if the relationship becomes damaged, if there are maybe cultural or diversity issues that they may need advice on, or if the lead negotiator just becomes tired and needs a break. I mean, sometimes these negotiations, these conversations can go on for several hours. There's generally an intelligence officer whose job is to obtain information about the person in crisis and about the victims. This information is then used to help plan negotiation strategies. A communication officer keeps all of the agencies on the same page. So you were talking a little bit about some of the communication difficulties that can happen. And certainly in these types of situations, you're going to have several different entities all there and they all kind of have their own piece or job that that they're doing. And so this person's whole job is to just communicate amongst the entities so that people kind of know what's going on. There also may be a public information officer who's responsible for conveying information to the media. And SWAT teams are often present should a tactical move be necessary, such as a breach like the one that occurred in Waco. Many teams also include a psychologist whose role it is to provide training to the team on active listening techniques, as well as threat and violence risk assessment. The psychologist also often assists the team with um, kind of building rapport with one another so that there's that kind of sense of solidarity that you were discussing, David. Right. And then during the crisis, the psychologist can provide guidance to the negotiator based on observation of the individual's mental state providing advice on the best persuasive techniques to use. I think some people assume the psychologist is the one who actually does the negotiating, um, but that's actually rarely the case. And if you think about it, that kind of makes sense. So if they're choosing a negotiator, they want somebody who's going to be a very neutral party, you know, and if they choose a psychologist as the negotiator. I mean, what message might that send to the hostage taker, right? It's like, oh, well, they must think I'm crazy. They sent in a shrink. Right. And so, yeah, they typically don't want to get things kind of started on the wrong foot. And, you know, I mean, there's other issues there kind of speaks to the stigma of mental health professionals and mental illness. And that's a whole other episode. But anyway, that's one of the reasons that they don't often use a psychologist as the negotiator. The psychologist is more the one just to um, advise. Also, while hostage negotiators do have an understanding of the psychology of the person in crisis and an understanding of risk assessment and persuasive techniques, they also have to have the real world police knowledge and skill that just comes from doing the job. You know, that's not really something that you can learn out of a book. It comes from from working in that environment over a long period of time. And that experience is extremely important in situations like these. So what do crisis negotiators like Gary Nosner actually do? The FBI's Crisis Negotiation Unit has probably developed one of the best known models for crisis negotiation called the Behavioral Change Stairway Model. And again, a lot of this was developed after what occurred in Waco. And it wasn't even necessarily developed after what happened in Waco, but it was formalized after that time. So this behavioral change stairway model is a five-step model that's been found to be useful in many types of negotiations. And so, David, you were talking about kind of the the need to de-escalate situations. And 
As I go through these five steps, I think it's going to sound very familiar because these are the things that we do on a day-to-day basis to de-escalate situations and to help people change their behavior in other ways. Ah, interesting. Okay. So the first step is active listening. During this step, and it's important to note that these steps do have to go in order, So during this first step, the negotiator actively listens to the hostage taker's complaints and concerns. So rather than trying to interject or change the person's mind, the goal is to make sure they hear what the person is saying so they can understand the emotional position of the hostage taker and identify what the actual problem is. So, you know, if we don't listen, we may totally miss the boat as far as whatever their complaint is. You know, that makes perfect sense. I tell a lot of people, especially the guys that I work with on a day-to-day basis, you know, when you're uh, an inmate, you know, a prisoner, and you're locked up, you cannot do a lot of the things that you would normally do for your loved ones in terms of support, right? So what you have to learn how to do is how to be emotionally supportive. And one of the absolutely best ways to do that is just to listen to somebody. And when I say that, like, just like you were talking about active listening, not sort of the, the tuned out listening, you know, somebody's talking and you're like, uh-huh. Oh yeah. Right. You're giving the automatic responses right. type thing. Right. But true presence. And so having that, I could see would go a long way toward helping diffuse or deescalate a situation just by deeply listening to what somebody has to say. But somewhere in there is going, it's going to be embedded with their, their pain, their suffering or whatever it is that is driving this behavior. Yeah. And I think even just having somebody listen to us can decrease that emotional charge. It's incredibly therapeutic. I mean, that's, that's pretty much what you're really paying a therapist for. Therapists give you advice and they can diagnose maybe or whatever, you know, mental health issues and stuff like that. But essentially, you're paying for them to give you their undivided attention. Yeah, so I think that active listening is important in all types of situations. And, you know, as you said, active listening, you're engaged as you're listening. So, you know, you're giving the person um, encouragement to continue. You're, you're you're giving them cues to show that that you're listening, saying, uh-huh, I, I hear what you're saying. You're, you're paraphrasing what the person has told you so that, that you can check out that what you're hearing is accurate and also show to them that you've actually been paying attention. Right. Um, and you also can ask those open-ended questions. So the second phase is empathy. Here, the negotiator expresses an understanding of the hostage taker's emotional experience, labeling emotions that may be present. It's important to note that expressing empathy is not the same as agreeing with the person's complaints. It's more of an, you know, it sounds like you're really frustrated with the way you've been treated versus, yeah, you should feel frustrated. Yeah, you're, you're totally right in your response. So it's not agreeing with them. It's just, again, having an appreciation for how someone might feel in that situation. If the negotiator is doing a good job with actively listening and expressing empathy, the third phase of building rapport often flows naturally. When we feel heard and emotionally understood by someone, that tends to increase our trust in that person. It establishes a connection with them, and we begin to feel empathy for that person in return. These first three phases also help to reduce the emotionality of the hostage taker, 
allowing for more rational thinking to take place, that de-escalation, like you said. I think we've all been in an emotionally charged state where it's been difficult to make rational decisions, you know, meaning decisions that are going to have the best long-term outcomes for us and other people. Well, essentially, you're dealing with two different parts of the brain, right? Right. Yeah, that's a good point. So usually if we can calm ourselves down and think through things, we make better choices. And that's the same idea here in these crisis situations. Once rapport has been established, the fourth phase of influence can begin. Here the negotiator can begin to help the hostage taker think more rationally about the situation. What is the best outcome for all of those involved? If there's rapport, the hostage taker is gonna be far more likely to listen than if rapport hasn't been established. And I think that a lot of times people skip those first three steps and they just go in and tell people what to do. Mm-hmm. And turns out people don't like that. Right. Right. We we are much more likely to take advice from people that we trust and that we have a relationship with. Well, so in those first three steps, right, in developing this relationship, again, if they had used somebody that already had a relationship with them, I wonder if, you know, that uh, these this could have been moved along a lot quicker. So I wonder if they had brought in somebody that they trusted from the sheriff's department who knew them, whom who they had a working relationship with, you know, what would that have looked like? Would they have been able to move the the negotiations further along much quicker? Would there have been a much more trust developed earlier on? Yeah, and I think that those are very good questions and it is very important to point out that those first 3 steps they can take a, a considerable amount of time, especially if you're dealing with someone who's in crisis or you're dealing with somebody who, you know, is feeling potentially paranoid or suspicious of other people. And so it's really important for law enforcement to be patient and persistent. Right. Negotiators also have to keep a level head and not take things personally, just like you were talking about. And sometimes that can be really difficult. But if the, if the negotiator becomes emotionally charged, it's going to damage the relationship. So once the negotiator begins to provide encouragement to act in a rational manner during that influence phase, the fourth phase, the hope is that phase five behavioral change will occur. And they found that it often does. Research suggests that in about 83% of hostage situations, hostages are released without serious injury. Other research suggests that 56% of crisis situations are resolved with negotiation alone, and another 12% are resolved with a combination of negotiation and tactical intervention. And 95% of crisis situations were resolved without any serious injuries. Psychologists play an important role in providing training on active listening and expressing empathy, And they can also provide input on the best way to influence an individual depending on their personality traits and style and any current mental health symptoms that may be occurring. So in Waco, this was the model that Gary Nosner was trying to implement as he had been a negotiator previously and understood the psychology of successful negotiations when he went into the situation. And I think they did a nice job depicting this in the Waco miniseries. Um, I think that they really kind of showed how he took the time to develop a relationship with David Koresh. Right. 
And, you know, this was initially effective at Waco. So while Gary Nosner was doing these negotiations during those first 25 days, there were 35 Branch Davidians, including 21 children, who had been released. Right. As a result of the negotiations. Yeah, there was some significant success from the negotiation model, the negotiation side. Right. But however, as you mentioned, David, some of the law enforcement officers were becoming impatient um, and some politicians were also becoming impatient. There was concern over the amount of money they were spending during the siege. And they there were people that wanted to end the siege tactically. Nasner's been fairly vocal in his criticism of them changing course to a more tactical approach and not continuing with the model he had established early in the standoff. And as I mentioned, the tragedy at Waco led the FBI to create this crisis negotiation unit and develop a formal model for negotiators to follow going forward in hopes of avoiding further incidents like Waco. So as tragic as this scenario was, the FBI did learn from it. So I think that that is kind of a good take-home message. Right. Again, I think that in the 90s, we had a lot of firsts in terms of what law enforcement was facing and how they were responding to it, you know, as as different agencies. I think what was interesting about this, again, is that these were not criminals. You know, when when you deal with criminals, force, authority, those types of things really are useful. However, when you're dealing with a group like this, a group that doesn't think like criminals that are not invested in power so much as they are in a very directed and accepted belief system that creates a unity amongst them, you're dealing with a whole different sort of thing. And I think that that was one of the biggest problems. And then add to that the fact that they were armed. They had an arsenal on them. And then we, the four ATF agents were killed. And like you said, that, again, just added fuel to the fire, so to speak. Yeah, when, when you're in law enforcement and you see that happen to a fellow officer, it activates a very visceral response. Sure. You know, and, and again, it's very difficult sometimes to, to temper that with what your professional responsibilities are supposed to be. So, you know, I think we're going to wrap this one up, but um, if you all have thoughts you'd like to share with us or with each other, you can do that on the discussion page on our website at psychologyafterdark.com. We'll also have some links to some articles talking about Waco there and about crisis negotiation. Um, And you can send us an email from our webpage as well. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at Psychology After Dark, so be sure to like and follow us there. And thank you all for listening and for all of the positive reviews and ratings. That's been really nice to have those. We really appreciate it. And David and I will be back in a couple of weeks with a brand new episode. Thanks for joining us. The information contained in our podcast, on our webpage, and on our social media pages is for entertainment purposes only. All views expressed are solely those of the individuals involved and do not represent the opinions of any entity whatsoever with which we have been, are now, or will be affiliated. The information is not meant to diagnose or treat any mental health condition. If you are experiencing mental health symptoms, we encourage you to contact a mental health provider in your community. If you are experiencing a mental health emergency, please call 911 or go to the nearest emergency room. Today's episode was written and hosted by Dr. David Morelos and me, Dr. Jessica McConnell. 
It was edited and produced by Dr. David Morelos. The songs in this episode were Dubstep Slow Motion by Cool Loop and The Arrival by Liskus, both provided by Gemendo.